Welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Napo. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here, as always, starting a new week uh, and uh, quite a busy week at that. We got quite a few uh, shows lined up this week. I think we're doing 20 shows this week. Um, how that happened is a long story. I don't care to repeat. Uh, but a couple of uh, publicists who I gave carte blanche to to, to book the show uh took me quite literally <laughs> and uh now i find myself kind of overwhelmed i noticed i got my funky glasses on i'm gonna change those because they tend to reflect a little bit i'm a little bit late getting started here today and i apologize for that uh again three shows and one in deep into the night last night uh midnight wrapped it, wrapped it up and then by the time we got published it was 2 a.m uh so i'm a little bit um scattered and, and scatterbrained a little bit here today um today's show is going to be about journalism uh the state of the fourth estate as they say uh and exactly what the, what it that is right now. I know there's a lot of distrust in the media, and I have some uh, associates on both sides of the aisle, uh, a lot of friends who are journalism. My, my degree is in uh, journalism, although I'm not a practicing journalist. I do have some pride uh, for the profession and a lot of friends who are in the profession. So uh, I am a little bit protective of the profession, to say the least. Uh, but I do understand that um cable tv news uh in especially and to some degree a lot of the uh tabloid uh publications uh can be guilty of uh hyperbole over uh sensationalizing things and um spin a lot of spin. So we're going to talk about that today. And I, I have my guest has uh, got some unique insights on that. And I look forward to, to uh, this conversation uh, we're about to have. Now, what's coming? I can't wait to get done with this. Three more days. October 29th, Chris Burris will be back. Chris Burris was with me, uh, it seems like uh, 100 years ago now, probably 150 years ago. Um, <laughs> he was promoting this product called My Vital C, and this is not a product promotion or advertising in any way. I need to say that uh, so up front. Uh, he was promoting that product when he was on, and one of the, the claims, it's a supplement. One of the claims he made about this supplement is that it can prolong your life by 90% or more, 90% or more, meaning uh, I'm going to live to you know, 140, 150 years old, uh, which is an extraordinary claim. It also makes uh, claims about giving you more energy, better sleep, better cognition, clarity of thought, uh, which is a highly subjective thing and really hard to measure <laughs> or impossible to measure. So I told him I was a skeptic. And he said, I tell you what, I'll send you some of the free product. You'll try it for six to eight weeks. You have me back. We'll discuss your results. So he'll be back October 29th, which is this Thursday uh, at 1 p.m. And we'll discuss my results uh, then. Uh, and uh, I'll be honest with you, <clears throat> a little spoiler alert here, excuse me. Um, 
I have felt more energy on it uh, for the most part. A couple of days, I got no, nothing out of it. Um, but uh, obviously, I can't tell uh, how how it's affecting my longevity. I feel like I'm still going to live to about tomorrow. <laughs> maybe, maybe if I'm lucky. Uh, but I'm doing it on the air for two reasons. Uh, one to hold myself accountable because, um, let's face it, I, I'm a scatterbrained kind of guy, and I might forget to do it if I don't do it on the program. And the other part of it is to have some video evidence, some video proof that I've actually done it. Comes in a little shot like this. It also comes in a little squeeze tube. I do it twice a day. I need to do it really quickly and get it over with. Wasted too much of the show time already. Let's do this. You notice I have to take it with a chaser, and if you've been watching the program, you know why. It tastes awful, which is the first thing I'm going to address with him, by the way, is that, you know, uh, they can make cough syrup taste less than awful. They should be able to make this stuff taste just a little bit less than awful. Okay, uh, on to the program. Uh, my sponsors today, FunWise Capital. Uh, you know all about them. They're a lender matching platform for business. They're a lender matching platform that gets you the best credit lines guaranteed. You can apply online in 60 seconds or less, and there's no effect to your credit to see how much you can get. Use the funding for anything you need to start or grow your business. That's right. I said start, and I pointed right at you. I said start. Why did I say that? Because if you don't have a business, uh, but you got a solid business plan, they can help you get funding. Get the uh, best uh, funding you can qualify for. Their strategic lender matching platform searches through hundreds of lenders to find the very best possible option for your unique situation. They have hundreds of five-star reviews on Google, Trustpilot, and Facebook, and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. They provide unsecured lines of credit at 0% interest for 9 to 15 months. That's 0% interest. You can't beat that. Uh, you can try a negative 1% interest, but I don't think any any bank's going to give you that. Uh, they provide unsecured term loans, loans uh, uh, based on your income, short-term gap funding or bridge loans. They work with real estate, startups, as I mentioned, uh, franchises, restaurants, any kind of business, any kind of project. To get started, it's really simple. You just go to apply.funwise.com slash minddog, apply.funwise.com slash minddog, minddog. Uh, and I do appreciate you patronizing my sponsors. Uh, Richard Mitson is a communications professional with extensive experience across a wide variety of disciplines, from working with politicians to early stage startups, which you could probably use some funding for, uh, uh, social media creation and live broadcast journalism. And he's here today to help me discuss journalism, what went wrong. Ladies and gentlemen, please open up your ears, open up your minds, and help me welcome in the fabulous Richard Mitson to the Mind Dog TV podcast. Richard, welcome. Hello, Matt. Thanks so much. What, what an amazing welcome. I'm just waiting for all the applause now. Oh, yeah. We, it, we it, get it's there. You just have to uh, hear it in your head because it, it, we can't pump it in through the mixer somehow. But it's, it's a bit like the sports stadiums at the moment, isn't it, with COVID, where they're yeah. pumping in the sound effects into it, the background. It, it's like, yes! Here we go! exactly what it's like. Exactly what it's like. <laughs> you know, I, I had Scott Page on the program who used to play uh, saxophone with Pink Floyd, and he's working on a technology that can have, uh, well, it's more than just a technology, but he wants to have a video wall of, like, say, a thousand video screens with yeah. different audience members, you know, groups of different audience members in their home. So you can actually hear the applause and feel like you're yeah. in a live concert. And I feel like that might be an omen for the way uh, entertainment and uh, things might really be going with this virtual stuff, because it doesn't feel like this stuff is going to end to me ever no I, I agree with you it's like when can we go on holiday again when can we go and do stuff but i think um 
I saw something online about, uh, I think Tony Robbins was, you know, he does these massive events with thousands of people. Yeah. And he was doing something where he had some big screens and he was standing in front of all these screens and he could see loads of individual people in that. I mean, it's, you know, it's not like standing in a room, is it? But yeah, you know, but it's think, better, Matt, you've got everyone watching you, you know, it's better than doing like a stale performance where you like you just mentioned, I can't hear the yeah. applause it, it, for yeah. a performer, especially you need to hear that applause. So, uh, and a comic, especially if you're doing stand up comedy, uh, I, cause I had a friend who did a, a, uh, stand-up comedy from his living room and he had the timing impeccable because he yeah. he did that oh, wait, listen in your head for the expected applause make yeah. believe it's there and then continue on with the joke but that's difficult to do yeah. but you imagine playing in your band and there's no one there I, you know, I, I don't have to imagine <laughs> <laughs> you must be kidding I know plenty of people come and see you <laughs> yeah, no. yeah, well, I have a memory that goes back, uh, fortunately, 40 years or so. And I definitely, <laughs> I definitely played a few gigs to my wife, and, <laughs> you know, and things like that. And the, and the band's girlfriend. And stuff. So I, I want to start by reading you a quote from, from sure. a friend on Facebook. And uh, mm -hmm. I want to get your response to this. I know what mine was. He Go said, his name is Jerry Brazzi. And he says, uh, and he's been on this program. He says, the last few days have shown me definitely that there is no longer honest journalism in this country, meaning the USA, and that the vast majority of the journalists are corrupt partisans. The forces, fourth estate is dead and they kill themselves. No totalitarian, no dictator, no state taking them over. Cowards who just rolled over in their, on their own. Criminal activity by the powerful needs to be investigated vigorously, regardless of the party, parties that should be held accountable equally. That is not what we have now, not even close. We will pay the price for this because of it, and we deserve it. Your response to that? Uh, I think there's an awful lot of painful truth in that. I agree also with what you said at the beginning, is that this doesn't apply to all journalists. Right. You know, um, you know, I should I should say sort of you gave my introduction, but I, I was a news editor for the second biggest news organization in the UK in their radio division. I also presented a drive time news program, uh, sort of like rolling twenty four hour news across London in the UK for several years as well. So I, I obviously know a lot of journalists and work with a lot of journalists, and there are people who are making programs now that go out at 11 o'clock at night that five people watch that are still really, really good thorough journalism. But right. that mainstream pumping out 24-hour news, and I mean, the, the coverage of the, the election in America, you know, it, it's just terrifying. I mean, where is, where are the facts? Where's the credibility? Right. And it is now just all about opinion. So that mainstream, I, I, so I agree with you. I think it's really important to say that there are still some really good journalists out there who aren't, who aren't earning a lot of money, but they're still true objective journalists doing what I got into it for when I got into journalism. But there's an awful lot of people out there now who are just doing it because it is an entertainment business and it's all about opinion. Right. But, you know, I, th I think that, you know, I could go on for hours about the kind of the reasons as to why I think it is, but well, I, I, I totally... <laughs> yeah, I would like no, to definitely. On. I would definitely like to hear you go on about what your what your reasons are uh, and, and all that. But uh, before we go go too far down that rabbit hole, I think, uh, and I think Jerry is guilty of this completely. Is uh, thinking political journalism is all all of journalism now uh, in, in any in journalism only. 
fifteen uh, percent are, or at most, are even in pl- politics at all. Uh, a lot of them cover fires and crimes and in movies and yeah. sports. Mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and although in sports, there's definitely a lot of opinion as well, but yeah. it's, it's not really partisan. So we're talking about fifteen percent uh, are uh, in politics, right? At no. most. I, I don't agree, actually. I think that the vast majority of journalism is of almost every type now has become about this opinionated thing. Now, as I say, I think there's a lot of reasons why, um, but I think almost anything you look at now, if you look at just the news agenda for the day, you can see how almost every story in there has got some sort of slant on it. Um, you know, okay, if you've got sort of a trade publication, for example, then they're bound to have a perspective, you know, like if it's for, let's say, the farmers, they're going to have the perspective of the farmers. But if you're looking at general news or general news coverage, every single item in there now will have some sort of slant to it. Now, you can say it's impossible to be completely objective, and it is. But what we used to have, certainly when I started off in news, was we had this ideal of trying to be objective, almost like treating news like being a scientist, right? Right. So, you know, as a scientist, you look at all these scientists working on COVID. Some of them are saying this, some of them are saying that, but they're trying to be as factual as possible to achieve an aim. And that's what we try to do with journalism. But I don't think that is the aim anymore. The aim now is to try and grab people's attention on whatever kind of news you're doing. Oh, I, I totally agree with that. But so, uh, but when you say there's a slant to everything, so if, I, if I'm covering a house fire, you're going to find mm. a political a slant in, in the. No, in- no, no, no. It's got, no, no. <laughs> That's it's what I'm be, saying. No, no, no. But but what you're what you're kind of saying there is that everything is politics. I mean, you could argue that everything is politics, but there is still a perspective on any kind of incident that happens that you're going to be applying to it. So if I ran a, a, a story in the news about a house fire. And I came on there and I went, oh, you know, isn't it great? A whole lot of people died today in a fire. You would be shocked and rightly so. So I have to add a slant to it. Now, a house fire is something that you're going to struggle to get a disagreement over. No one's going to go, oh, fantastic, 10 people died in a house fire. But on almost everything else, apart from these kind of very, very commonly agreed tragedies, there is some kind of perspective that you can add to it. You know, it's like... um. You, you remember the Costa Concordia? Do you remember the cruise ship that sank in yes, Italy? Of course. Yeah. So you could say you could say that here is something whereby um, systems broke down. The people didn't communicate. But what was the top story? The captain of the ship was having an affair with someone. You know, that's kind of the main thing that got covered. Or he was off having pints. He was getting plastered. He was drunk at the time. You know, it's like, well, what else happened in there? So almost anything you can add a perspective to. It hasn't got to be Donald Trump versus Biden. It can right. be almost anything that you can add. And the more you can make that extreme slot with, you know, sadly, we're more interested in the fact that, 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 you know, Italian Lothario was drinking and hanging out with women than we are in what actually killed people and how that could be prevented again. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I totally agree with you on that. It's just that I, if I go through any kind of, even if I went through a tabloid uh, paper today, um, most of those things would be those, those tragedy stories. There would be a child abduction. There'll be, you know, oh, by the way, your, your morning commute is going to be uh, kind of delayed because mm-hmm. they're, there's a, they're taking up the tracks or whatever it is. So ha- most of the paper is that the first six pages are full of political stories 
stuff and spin, even if it's not a political story. I, I get that. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of working journalists are out there covering a car crash or a, a, a house fire or a child abduction or, or that kind of stuff and well, not thinking about how am I going to spin this? Well, they used to be. But yeah. now the money, now what you're getting sent on, the story you're getting sent on. I mean, I, I remember as a reporter, um, I can't remember what the other story was, and this is half of the problem, is that I was going to be going out to some, I think it was a murder or something like that, and instead they got me to go and stand outside a celebrity's house who'd been accused of some kind of, uh, of sexual harassment. And I had to stand outside this house with a group of other journalists and wait to see if he came out so we could get a quote from him. And he right. didn't come out, strange enough. Right. Uh, why so, would he? Why would well, he? I wouldn't. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a whole other question, isn't it? But, <laughs> I mean, that was it. We were standing there in the cold getting very miserable, waiting for something to happen. But right. there's the point there, is that editorial decision was made to go and stand outside a house of someone that wasn't even going to come out instead of covering something whereby, I, I think it was a murder. I can't honestly remember. I just remember <laughs> being so cold outside that building. Right. I, I totally get that. Who's responsible for that? I, I think there's a bunch of reasons, bunch of reasons. I mean, and I could, I seriously could go on for hours about it. I mean, I think if you sum it up, budgets is one thing. There's a, a sort of new breed of journalists, the whole attitude of the kind of people who've come into it. Now, when I started, people always viewed it as the aim was to be objective and to tell the truth and to report the truth. And now, so, so for example, when, when you used to get new reporters coming into the newsroom and you'd say, the one, the first thing you'd say is what do you want to achieve? You know, what, what are your aims? Because you always wanted to kind of, you know, it's like any job you want to guide them into whatever they might, might enjoy. And at the beginning it was like, Oh, you know, I want to go out and I want to uncover the story behind, you know, this organized crime or, or this situation. But, by the end of it, they said, I want to be on TV. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right? <laughs> now, that's a bit of a different attitude. Yeah. Um, you've also got the changing market. You, you know, when media was objective, you didn't have many choices. You didn't have Mind Dog TV at the time, did you? No. I know. So, the, <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. So in the past, advertisers had only a few outlets that they could advertise on. Whereas when it spread out and you got loads more, you couldn't upset an advertiser anymore. Right. Because they, they, they wouldn't come back to you and go, oh, it's just one story. We know you had to cover it. They're going to go, no, forget it. I've got plenty of other places to go to. Right. I think also you have to say, well, what about ourselves? Because one thing that people often do, and it's interesting this point you made about, you know, sort of defending journalists because I think it's very true, is that journalists ultimately are having to make something that appeals to people. And if people didn't buy that or watch it, they would not make it. Exactly. Right? That's, what, that's why I said who, who's, who's responsible. Isn't it the consumer uh, uh, at the end of the day? The I consumer. think it's a cycle. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but again, you know, I haven't, I haven't had television in my house for 12, 12 years now, especially mm-hmm. cable news and stuff. So I feel like I, I've done my responsible thing by not giving them the airtime, uh, and, and not, not, not buying in, not giving them the ratings to support their advertising. So, uh, it's, it's kind of futile to complain about something if we're going to keep feeding it. Right. <laughs> but, but I think, I think we're actually going through a cycle now because, 
you know, what, one of the reasons why I think news was objective was because, you know, when, when journalism began, you know, when you imagine people handing around bits of paper off the back of lorries and, uh, well, not even lorries, but off carts, when it all started, you would get a journal or you would get something posted on a you know, wooden post in the town. That was all very biased and people's opinion. And then you got to like the last century where you had all these major news organizations that journalists wanted to join, like Associated Press, Press Association. And they had to provide news to newspapers and media that had different perspectives. So some of them would be Republican, some of them would be Democrat. But if you're providing to both, you needed to provide the facts. So it was you aspired to join these organizations as a journalist to be objective. Now, now there's not really that sort of interest in that detailed reporting anymore. They don't need that anymore. Right. And now it's about going, well, how can we get the best ratings? And that means opinion. And that means being controversial. I mean, one thing you said was about, um, uh, you know, the list of stories, uh, stories again, and about how the railway is being uh, uh, dug up and this kind of stuff. And it's like, so in one breath, now we're getting this thing of going, isn't it shocking that people are so scared and worried these days? And then in the next news item, you have a hundred reasons why you should be terrified. Right, 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 yeah, yeah. Right. What? So, but it's cheap and easy to make opinion-based TV. It is hard work and expensive to make real journalism. You know, a lot of the stuff we did when I was a journalist, I would go out and make documentaries, but I did it outside my work time because there wasn't even the money then. Right. So, but I could have done an opinion piece and just, you know, just gone on the radio and ranted about something and it would have cost me nothing. I could have done it and gone home on time. Well, Adam Lippy, who was an uh, independent filmmaker, was here last week, and he had a, mm. uh, a unique observation on what you just said. And basically, uh, it, he said, you know, they discovered that panel talk shows were the t cheapest thing to do. I have just five people sitting around a desk. Yeah. Nothing to produce them, no cost involved. Mm -hmm. Don't have to send a reporter out or any of this stuff. And uh, consumers seem to love it. So it, it mm -hmm. spread beyond CNN, Fox, uh, MSNBC, all those things, uh, to now uh, ESPN and uh, Home Cooking Channel and, and every major television outlet is kind of doing panel shows rather than yeah. producing real, uh, yeah. you know, information-based shows. So it's all about opinion now, and it's all about uh, what can I say to really um, – just be sensational to kind of get a reaction because any reaction, good or bad, is enough to get to drive ratings, and so that that's people right. will share it the next day on social media and you know, you know boost your ratings. So yeah. there's, there's that to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, po well, and politics is the easiest way of doing it, isn't it? Because if you start talking about something which there could be a lot of mixed opinions, you're gonna, you know, so it's a bit like communicating in politics. If you're too clear about what you believe, you can alienate 80% of the audience. Right. But if you're vague enough, then you can have two sides that both think you just said what they wanted to hear. Right. Now, so with news media, what you then do is you, you do on a bipartisan, but you know, you do Democrat, Republican. So you know the Democrats are not going to watch Fox News, or at least they might do if they've got some kind of, you know, strange, <laughs> strange enjoyment no, from, I, from I, doing I, something I, like that. Actually, right. I, I find the Democrats uh, watch more than the Republicans do, only to, mm -hmm. if to look for what they can hang somebody on. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Um, 
But the, but the point is, that if you if you are Fox News, you kind of have given up on the Democrats. So you say, well, what can we do? We can talk to the Republicans right. and pretty much anything we say will appeal to people in that and vice versa. You know, it's no different on both sides. So you just become more and more partisan. But I, I, I think we've actually reached almost we're coming to the end of that phase as well, whereby the sensationism started and it worked. But now we have got so many other outlets for getting our news and opinion that all they can do is keep getting more and more extreme. But the more and more they do that, you know, I don't need to listen to Fox or CNN or whoever to get opinions. I can go to Twitter now. I can hear people that say the kind of things I want to say. I've got plenty of other choices. So where does news go from there? They don't have money anymore. They don't have the journalists who are interested in real journalism. All they can do is keep sensationalizing more and more and more. And people are turning off and going to other places. So what happens? Um, they you know? start, well, eventually um, they'll lose money and figure something else out that's going to make money. Uh, and Because it is, and at the end of the day, all about the buck. But yeah. here... Here's the the thing that I where I have real problems with Jerry's statement up there is he he tries to make it personal about the journalist and I think it's not about the individual I I don't I, knowing the people in it mm-hmm. uh, people are in it you know a lot of people want as you mentioned their goal is to get on TV and my day it was to write a book well, you became a journalism major to go you figured you put in years working for a publication eventually you'd write a novel and become a great novelist now it's to be on television and be famous everybody wants to make money so and we're all no no matter what business you're in, you want to, you're, you know, money is what makes the world go around. So people have personal ambitions, but they, I, I don't think uh, the average working journalist is a corrupt person, as he put it, and just like uh, w- wants to, you know, see how I can really sneak one by the the, the public, whether it's America or worldwide. I'm not trying. I'm not go setting out there. How can I set my agenda on? fire and and change the world today i'm thinking how can i make a name for myself maybe how can i get more money how can i get more attention at work or or that kind of stuff and the the institution whether it's fox news you you know whatever you name it you can name any new york times they're the ones putting the pressure for the spin most of the time and and the the headline writers are not journalists they're they're marketing people yeah (laughs) i would say that I, I would say that neither of those is quite right. I would say that there's a big mix of people and a big mix of factors. And I, there, I, I, I say at the beginning, there are people I know, journalists, who, as long as they're earning enough money to live and pay their bills, they will do anything. I mean, I remember when, was it? Um, no, when the 7-7 bombings happened in London. So this is when a series of buses and tube trains were blown up. I was on the dentist chair at the time when the news came in and, and the receptionist came in. I was lying on the chair and the first thing I did was I just told the dentist to, to finish up because I'm going to work. And all of us, even people on holiday off that day, went into work because that's what we did. Right. So it wasn't just about earning a living. It was a passion. It was something we genuinely believed in in reporting the facts and that was our, our job. So there definitely are still journalists out there like that. But I think there's far too many of the other sort now who just want to be on TV. Oh yeah, you know, and, and I and I agree with you. you. You know, there are there are a lot of old hacks, and I I mean that in a in a in a nice way because you know that's what they used to be called, journalist hacks, who realise if they wanted to earn a living in future, they had to become opinionated. Right. And you, you've got to understand. You've got to understand that as well. It's, so it's in a way, it's not so much a blame thing. It's a kind of what went wrong. 
you know, and what can be done about it? Well, what can be done about it? Do you, do you see it ever? Um, not, not, I'm not really asking you for the fix, but I'm, I'm more of a <laughs> more of a prediction on. Do you think it will ever get better? Um, I don't think it will. I don't. Think but I think <laughs> I, I don't think it will. But I think new media, online media, this sort of thing that you're doing, what podcasters are doing, provides us with the opportunity now to get the kind of insight maybe not necessarily objective insight but insight that journalism and that modern mass news can no longer deliver right right you know i I mean this sounds like a really weird example but um i i took a car journey the other day which was like five hours and apart from obviously listening to your show um i also listened to this guy who was an ultra marathon runner and he literally did a, a sort of monologue for about 20 minutes where he described what it was like to, dr- to um, run for 100 miles over a couple of days, almost nonstop. And that authenticity, you just are not going to get on CNN or, or, Sky, or Fox News or anything else anymore. Right. So that ability for podcasters, new media like you, to give real, genuine insights from people, I think, I, I hope, is where we will find the new as close to objectivity as we can get because we're not going to get it on the mass outlets anymore yeah i i I tend to agree with that i had michael hilliard on who is an independent journal a fiercely independent journalism Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh he was uh i basically you know because most podcasts are most soft news if it if news at all a lot of opinion as well and basically uh i i was asking him about stories that we might not know about because they're not covered in in, and he had a a lot of them and he was going going through you know stuff in parts of the world that i don't i can't couldn't find on a map and uh but at the end of the day I didn't know. I had no idea, and still don't. Six months later, I still keep in contact with him and follow him. I have no idea if he's a Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, mm-hmm. where, where's, and so, uh, and he's been published in, you know, he's been uh, featured on all the major uh, news outlets to some degree, but he works for himself. So I think there are a lot of those guys out there, and podcasts can like, you know, can give them a platform to, to speak. But if nobody's listening because they'd rather uh, tune in at nine o'clock at night. And here's the problem, I think, uh, is that most workaday people, by the time they get home, they're almost in a hypnotic state anyway. They sit on the couch. They've had dinner. Now they're even more relaxed and more. And they go on and something like whether opinionated uh, cable news, three hours straight or four hours straight between uh, 7 p.m. and midnight, usually even, uh, they're just going to repeat talking points over and over again and kind of like a hypnotic drone. So it gets into people's minds. Now I'm, I'm conditioned to just repeat everything they say without thinking about it the next day. And when I get into arguments with my coworkers, I'm just going to say what Tucker Carlson told me to say or, or what, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, the I Anderson, uh, the guy on CNN, I can't think of his first name, but, but uh, you know, well, I'm basically but, just... But, but are you feeling good about that, or are you getting angry and angry about it? Uh, well, I, most people would get angry and angry about it. I just kind of learned to tune it out now, and I say, you, I, I think you know my mantra. If you can't put it into your own words, then it's not your own thoughts. Tell me what you really think. I can respect your opinion, mm. if it's your opinion. 
But there are 7 billion people in the world, and there's only three opinions on any issue. It's right, wrong, or in the middle, and you're yeah. using somebody else's words uh, that, that gave you those words. Put it into your own mm -hmm. words so I know it's really your thought. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we, we used to have a thing in the newsroom, which was that um, people want a story with a black and white answer, but the reality is every story is gray. It sure is. It absolutely is. Right? And, I mean, this is another thing as well, is that – when you look at, at what could be the future of objective journalism and you look at things like uh, This American Life, you know, and the NPR and the kind of approach they do there, which while is not that nicely packaged five-minute news story or not even five minutes now, 30-second package, you're hearing these insights from real people about real experiences. So you're actually getting news delivered in a new way now. Right. And yes, it will be from that person's perspective, but hopefully you're going to hear different perspectives as well. And so anyone that has experienced something has got an amazing story ultimately if you can pull that out. So I think from the point of view of, of new media, as, as people presenting podcasts and shows you know, like this, you know, this is what you're doing, is you're drawing this story out. So the facts are there in the person's mind, and it's your job to turn that and help and guide that into a story that right. will engage people. Because, because almost, you know, almost the most boring stories have always got something interesting about them if you're prepared to dig deep enough. Absolutely. If you're prepared to ask questions, which are a bit off-ball, I mean, a very brief rant, okay? One thing I can't stand about modern media is that all the journalists ask exactly the same questions on almost every outlet. Right. And what I did when I was presenting Drive Time News was that I would ask the questions that came into my mind spontaneously. I didn't have a script. I didn't have five questions that every other journalist had asked that day. I thought to myself, what do I genuinely, in my gut, genuinely want to know? Right. And I asked it. Yeah. You know, I don't know whether people are nervous about asking questions. And I don't mean attacking. You know, I don't mean like going, you know, Matt, why did you do that today? Right. I mean, asking you genuinely something which is deep and probing because you are going to get, with that approach, you are going to get fascinating stories out of people. Anyone Ab you will get. Absolutely. I yeah, totally you know agree this. With, yeah. I got uh, raves on a guy who uh, was a, a, a basically a house cleaner guy that I did. I, did, I had him on the podcast in a, or <laughs> for an interview. And they, you made that an interesting uh, because i'm generally interested in what he had to say and i think most of what you're talking about comes from lack of self-confidence in uh do i know enough to ask intelligent questions so no i don't i'm i'm don't so i better write it down and then i'm not even going to bother to listen to your answer i'm just going to uh go in order of the questions that i have written down where oftentimes i'll ask the first question and then the answer to that question will change my mind again completely about where to take this because I'll, I'll find something I listened to and I heard in there and it said, wow, that's interesting. Let's talk about that a little more and dig deeper into that idea. That Because you can only do that in long form where uh, sponsors aren't saying, wait, you got eight minutes to get in and get out and then have the advertising spot. Uh, that part has definitely gone away where we can, we can be relaxed and have a long form conversation. Yeah, but I think you can get into short as well. I was doing three to five minute interviews when I was doing that drive time program, no more than that. Right. And so you've just got to, 
you know, you've obviously got to set the pace and it does help because when you've got a program going out regularly like yours, people know the format. They know kind of whether they've got to keep their answers shorter or longer. So they've got a sense of that beforehand. So, for example, my show on that on that station, they knew that they were going to get three to five minutes. So they knew it was going to be fairly quick. They knew I was going to interrupt them if I needed to. But I would do exactly what you just said, which is to ask the first question, and then you're you're watching them, you're listening to them, you're getting a sense of what is going to be the most interesting angle. What is it that I'm really curious about? And then you go straight for that. Right, right. I mean, everyone's already heard the answers to the other questions on every other outlet. Right. And so uh, when, when podcasters say, how, you know, how do you stand out? And it's like, well, by using your own perspective. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, I want to I want to get your uh, thoughts on this and uh, how to do it without coming off as as partisan here, because I try not to. And I get most of my hate mail is why didn't you challenge that? And I've had uh, conservatives on and I get, well, why didn't you challenge them more on this point? And then I have liberals on and I get hate mail saying, why didn't you travel challenge them yeah. more on this? Uh, and, uh, you know, so I try to I really try to keep my independence because I'm not mm -hmm. part of any party and I don't belong to any uh, solid um, ideology. I have leanings on both things, but I look at issues, right? Mm -hmm. But this idea of Donald Trump and he's a very polarizing uh, person, but the fact that his presence alone has made things worse for the media, whether you love him or hate him, uh, his presence uh, has made things worse in the media. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Doug Stanhope, one of my favorite comedians, uh, has said this. He used to watch CNN for bits, for information to have comedy about. In other words, they'd run a lot of stories that, you know, odd news and guy whose kid got eaten by a crocodile in Florida or whatever, or alligator in Florida, and uh, stuff like that. And then Donald Trump came along, and now it's 24-7 about Donald Trump, and we don't have any of those other stories. So we're not seeing the stories about house fires anymore or uh, on on the news, on television at all. We're just seeing 24-7 Trump on all three channels, whether they love him or hate him. You're either pushing, I love Donald Trump or I hate Donald Trump, but it's never about anything. You know, we don't hear about a war in Afghanistan. There's a war in Afghanistan. We don't ever hear any news about it because we hear about how whether Trump is a good person or a bad person. Your take on, on his presence and the effect on the media. Yeah, well, I would say the first thing is what's cheapest to cover? Donald Trump sends a tweet out that you can get angry about or sending a reporter to Afghanistan to drive for hundreds of miles to a Taliban camp to try and find out what's going on. Right, uh, absolutely. It's cheap. <laughs> Now the other thing is that Donald Trump, from a from a, a market, you know, from a sort of um, attention grabbing point of view, was gold dust for the media, right? Because he polarized. So yeah. here's a guy who is used to being on TV, who's used to saying the wrong thing to grab attention. You know, whether you agree with the policies or not, irrelevant. From a from a point of view, of what makes good TV? He knew how to make good TV, right. and it allowed everyone to get really angry around it. And the more the more focused you get on this, and the closer it gets to the the election as well, is the more people just get drawn into it because they're getting angry. It gets the endorphins going in their body. It gets them. You know, Ira Glass from NPR. So this is this American Life again. D does some great stuff about. He talks about the power of story and why it works. Story is not just someone talking about what happened on their day. Story is biologically addictive.
Because when you start to tell a series of events, this is his words, not mine. I wish I was this clever. But anyway, um, when you start to tell a series of events and you start to get invested in it and then you stop or leave something out, you feel stress in your body because you want to know what that is. It's a natural fight or flight response. So by developing a story, by developing I don't know what's going to happen, by developing fear, you make people literally addicted to watching this content being pumped out over and over again. As long as you can keep the fear and the drama going, you have got people chemically addicted to that show. Well, so it makes sense. Right. I, it, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So what happened, see, I think part of, and we'll, we'll see next week uh, in, in America, at least, what happens with this election. But I think part of the appeal of Biden is that it's boring. I think people, uh, uh, I think, uh, people are longing for some peace and tranquility, even if it's in the small measure, just a, a, some kind of respite uh, from the nonstop uh, kind of stuff that Jerry was kind of ranting about in that early quote, which is like, it feels like it's just, you know, nobody trusts the media and it's just louder. It just keeps getting louder and noisier. <laughs> are people going to be watching the news though? If Trump gets, uh, um, gets, uh, gets uh, kicked out. No, uh, are they going to watch uh, Biden give a speech? You know, probably not. No. So actually, whatever side of of it you're on, any news organization is going to actually probably behind the scenes be praying that Trump stays in. Right, and any comedian, anybody who 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 needs um, something that's e that's easy is going mm -hmm. to be for Trump. Whether yeah. whether they agree with his policy oh, or yeah. not, they're gonna they're gonna want him to win because he's my bread and butter right now. He's where I'm getting my attention. He's getting Absolutely. He's with, yeah. Well look at how polarized things have become. I mean, you know, we are we've got polarization here in the UK, but it's nothing like the level it's got to in the States. Right. Well I think But that same sorry Matt. There's three polls now. There's, there's the left, the right, and there's this uh, uh, just um, uh, there's this Trump is a poll in, in, is a, a polar polarizing figure right down uh, his own card, and I don't think he's left or right. I don't think he's a he's a real conservative. He has no real conservative leanings. I mean, for 30, 40, 50 years now, it's all been about controlling the debt. And debt's gone, you know, our debt has gone skyrocketing since he, he doesn't care about conservative values or principles, but he's li listed as a conservative. The true conservatives are trying to move away from him any way they can, trying to get around him and carve out a niche for themselves. And then you have the left, which, again, it leads to why I think uh, Biden it was the choice of the Democrats. Democrats didn't want, real leftists don't want Joe Biden. They didn't. Mm. They, they have no use for him. He's more like a Joe Lieberman, um, if you're familiar with Joe Lieberman, the Al Gore Joe Lieberman, uh, mm. who who is more of a Republican than a Democrat, but he still had the D on front of his name. That's been Biden all along. Biden was a, de a Reagan era Democrat uh, and and worked very closely with Reagan, and, mm. and so uh, you know he's not what the Democrats want, but they're running him because he's the most. Uh, he's He's the only one that can appeal to centrist Republicans and get, take them away from Trump. But, uh, you know, politics, and, and I've also worked in politics, um, you know, with the case of Biden, they had to try and unite the Democrats. And, and I'm no expert on the political front in America, so correct me if I'm wrong. But I get the feeling that the Democrats are quite a broad church. So they've got quite a diversity of views. You've got people who are on yeah. the, the kind of center right almost. You've got people who are actually on quite the hard left as well.
Right. So, in, so then if you're going to have someone to be picked, you're going to try and pick someone that is going to appeal, aren't you, to as many yeah. sides as you can to try and unite the party. Now, when you looked at Trump turning up, Trump turned up and from what I could see from here is that pretty much everyone within the establishment was like going, he's a joke, let him run because he's a bit of a laugh, but he'll fall out. But then they started to see that actually people were prepared to vote for him and were interested in him and he made great TV and he grabbed the attention. Right. So all of a sudden the established ways of doing things, which feels like what has happened with Biden is they found the, the common ground candidate. All of a sudden you've got someone who broke all the rules. Right. And the one thing that parties love above anything else is winning. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No. I mean, we had a situation in, um, with Tony Blair, who I think a lot of people in America will, will have heard of. Right. And the, when the Labour Party, so this is the, uh, you know, the, the um, socialist is the wrong word. So when the left wing uh, of British politics, you've got the right wing who are the conservatives, the left wing there. When the left wing was established in Britain, without giving you a long, boring history lesson, they basically said, as part of the constitution of the party, we want to renationalize industries. Right. And this was a fundamental part of their party. It was in their constitution. It was called Clause 4. Tony Blair turned up, and he started winning things. So they've been having a, t a terrible time, disastrous time. They've been out of power for years, and he started winning things. And he said, right, we need to get rid of Clause 4, which was a fundamental part of the entire party. Right. And they went, okay, because you're winning things. Right. And that's what happens. And that's not just their, that party. It's every party that does this kind of thing. If you win, people will put up with it. Right. Uh, but but uh, they they are sacrificing. The, again, Joe Biden is not the Democrats' choice. If you talk to any single Democrat not united in the party, if you take them apart from uh, and just take them aside and say, well, who would your preferred candidate be? They, they, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, they'd name a lot of people, but it wouldn't be Joe Biden. Yeah, Joe but that's the problem, isn't it? Yeah. But that's the problem. So Absolutely. in which case, you have to have one person. Yeah. So who is the person that everyone can kind of accept? Right, exactly. That's, uh, and that's exactly why they got stuck with Joe yeah. Biden. Now, none of them are happy with it, but they, they, they'd rather him than Trump. It's, it's, and this has been why I have never mm -hmm. voted for either party in my entire adult life, is mm -hmm. because uh, uh, it's always a choice of who's the worst. It's not a choice of who's the best. It's always a choice of who's uh, not to vote for the one you disagree with the most. It's it's okay. the lesser of two evils. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let, I'm trying to think of a, a sort of um, a Democrat. Is, is Jimmy Kimmel? Is he a Democrat? Of course, yes. Okay, if he <laughs> stood, okay, if he stood for for the presidency, would people vote for him? Uh, no. Really? Yeah. yeah. Why? Uh, because he he's um, said some controversial things in the past. Okay, he's a comedian. And okay, so, but yeah. Uh, okay, but if you've got a what a, I don't know enough about it, so I was going into yeah. ground. I didn't really know that. But if it, you've got a celebrity on the Democrat side, who was who was entertaining, charming, um, you know, could could do some funny jokes and whatever. You know, he, he, well, look at Obama, how he came from the background to go to the front and become president. If right. you've got someone who's got TV presence now and a bit of celebrity about them, whether you agree with them or not, you're going to have a hell of a lot better chance than picking the 
candidate we can all kind of agree with. Oh, I agree. They, but the only people they had, and this is the problem, Bernie Sanders, uh, and he's a politician, of course, but he's mm-hmm. that he's the uh, counter to Trump. The only problem is Bernie Sanders is, uh, he makes Trump and Biden both look like young men. Uh, and so, yes. and, and I bring it up all the time in, in, in America, uh, and I, I get a lot of blowback on this, we should have an age restriction on the presidency because I'm tired of old people <laughs> running the country uh, and the world. And so, uh, and being an old person, I think I have a right to say that. But. Now they, they say, <laughs> they say that's against the constitution. That's age ageism, right? And, and you can't be, uh, you can't be discriminatory against age, but there's already a discrimination on age. You have to be at least 35 to run. So there's that discrimination. You, you can't run at 34. There's mm-hmm. that, you know, so, but, but I don't but these- but is the problem his age, or is it how people react to someone of that age? It's how people react to someone. Well, with Bernie, yeah. with Bernie, it's that. It's it's that he yeah. seemed like a grumpy old man. With Biden and, and Trump, they both have uh, what appears to be uh, onset of early dementia. It's, and, and I think Biden is a little more uh, verbally uh, dem- demonstrative of whatever demon- de- dementia is going on. Trump is more physically uh, demonstrative of it. Like he doesn't remember his wife is standing right next to him. And he says, he wishes she could be- Melania wishes she could be here tonight. And she's right there. But, but this also comes back to this whole whole thing about perception again and about news. And it's like, well, what are you voting for? Are you voting for the person that will deliver the best quality of life for you? Or are you voting for someone who seems like they're kind of okay? And uh, I think a lot of voting is done on, you know, I mean, you know that feeling when you go into the voting booth. Do you sit down there and pick up two, you know, 10,000 word tomes and read through all the policies and look at their ins and outs of it? Or do you go, you know what? Yeah, they seem pretty much right. Well, I think that's exactly, you just hit on the, and that's my mantra too, is, is it's about issues. And so, mm-hmm. I can be, you know, the party platforms are all about don't think for yourself. We're going to tell you what our position is on every one of these issues, and you're going to agree with them. Mm. Don't don't think for yourself. So when it comes down to abortion, most people uh, have a position on abortion. They're for it or against (laughs) it without thinking, well, what what are the real... What are the real issues behind behind this? What at, at play here with abortion? What is it really? Is it the is it the cost to taxpayers for uh Planned Parenthood paying for this stuff, or is it you really have a moral objection? Do you not? Uh, do you believe it's not uh, a human being until it's in its ninth month? Mm-hmm. What, you know, what are the real things? People don't want to look at any of that real substance of the issue. They just want to say, well, the party says that we're against, we're against it, and. Then they start spewing out, you know, baby murderers. If you're, if you're, <laughs> and and that's where it's 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 just gone so wrong because, right. you know, I I I want to hear what people I disagree with have to say, and right. if what they say is good, I want to be convinced. Right. You know, I did I did a documentary which is still the probably the one I'm most proud of on the radio, which was about prostitution. And the reason I did it is because prostitution always seemed to be treated in two ways, either in a sort of almost schoolboy type way yeah. or in a way of, oh, these poor girls, where they must be rescued. And I always thought that there was more to it than that. So I went out and I did two, two uh, parts to this documentary. The first part was a kind of um, 
oh how bad this is so i talked to like the vice squad i talked to the the drug centers that were were helping the prostitutes and then i spoke to the other side whereby they say it's a good thing so like the sex tourists to madams to prostitutes and instead of going oh i need to rescue you which maybe they did that's not my job to tell i asked them to tell me their story and this was absolutely fascinating because I mean, the flack I got when I tried try to reach out to, to actually get prostitutes and madams to talk to me was incredible, the abuse I got. But I still got some to talk to me. And I remember going into, into this brothel and sitting down in this room, sitting next to the madam in, in, in the waiting room, and they, they quickly turned off the TV and the video recorder in there at the time because you can imagine they might have been showing things that perhaps I wasn't meant to see. And I sat down next to this person, and the first thing she looked at me, and clearly not sure, and, and I just sort of said, well, how, how did you actually get into it? And she looked at me first with that kind of suspicious look. And then I, there was a couple of questions and she realized that I was just simply asking her to tell me her story. And it was absolutely incredible radio, yeah. absolutely gripping because there was no longer this kind of, oh, they must be rescued or, oh, this is bad or, oh, this is good. Right. It was now about a real human being with goods and bads. I mean, you know, I, uh, without telling the whole thing, but it's like because of what she was doing, she was putting her, 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 her kids through a very exclusive private school. Did she want to do what she was doing? No, she hated it. So there in itself, you've got that contrast. And, and also the story is, is well, what would you do? Right. If you were from a down and out poor environment where your kids had no hope, and you had got into this, you no choice of your own, but you was you're in it already. And then you had kids later on, and you could give them an exclusive private school and give them an opportunity to come out of what you'd been through and achieve all that. So you're not starting prostitution before because of it. You're already in it. Right. Would you quit then and say, no, they can't go through that? Or do you put up with it for a bit longer to get them through it? Uh, you know? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's a horrible decision, but what a human situation to be in. Exactly. Exactly. That's the, that's the point. It's a human situation to be in. And I think, you know, that uh, loss of empathy on a lot of, on a lot of ways, but you know, just to, as you mentioned earlier on the proclivity to think of everything as black and white and, and mm. make believe the gray areas don't exist because the gray areas are, are the majority of the area. The black and white are just the periphery mm-hmm. outlines of it. But and the gray just, areas where the most amazing stories are as well. Absolutely, yeah. With real journalism. Yeah. So what what did we what did we figure out here today? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we figured out that uh, there's a lot of reasons why media is the way it is now. Right. Um, but, but, and you, and you don't think it's going to get better? And I would agree on a national scale or, or a worldwide scale. When we look at like mass media, I don't think it's going to get better. No. Now, I would say the only reason it might is if you look at other countries where there has been no media or or has been very media which has been very controlled by the government, where people thirst for truth, and there because people want to know what's actually happening. It's in the media's interest to try and be objective or at least to come across as objective. Right. But we are in such a, you know, a, a postmodernist society now where, yes, we have serious problems, but compared to the times when we didn't have any shoes on our feet and anything, 
we live in quite an advanced situation now. If we actually were going back to that bit where we had people marauding through our towns, killing people, gangs, tribes, whatever, the government murdering people, then all of a sudden I think we'd be in a different situation. But I would much rather have Donald Trump as president on, on Fox News than have that situation. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah I, I would have to. So I, I don't hold out much hope unless something really dramatic like that happens. Right. Uh, what do you think about this idea of censorship as it pertains to media? Let's say Twitter or Facebook. Are they capable of censorship because they're private entities? And just like uh, I think government is the, it can, is the only one truly capable of what I call censorship or bad censorship. In other words, uh, stopping somebody to say something because it's a political opinion or whatever. I think individual companies have the right to do that and i would use the example of uh you know pornography if there weren't why don't why don't we have pornography on broadcast television uh because it would make a lot of money but it's being censored not by the government so per se but by the by the uh individual private companies that say no that would not be good for our business we have the right to say no <laughs> what is your I take mean, on it i think there's two elements here one is that when you've got something like Twitter or Facebook, you've got something which is so huge that it's almost gone beyond just a few little individuals. And because they're in such a monopolistic position, right? you know, there is no rival to Facebook. You can't, if you don't like what Facebook's opinion is, you can't go somewhere else. There is no, um, of course you can, but there's nothing on that scale. Right. So you then have, you know, with great power comes great responsibility type thing. Yeah, yeah. Right. So should a company that big just start censoring based on their opinions? I think they have to think, I mean, it sounds like a cop out, but they have to think very carefully about it because I'm not happy about that. Absolutely. But, I hear but in the same respect, I also do have a big problem with this kind of cancel culture thing now. Right. Because I do want to hear what other people have to say. You know, I, um, you know, I, I I don't have to agree with someone to want to hear their opinion. I said it earlier. Right. And if you are, if you feel that you have to stop someone else talking because you believe other people are too stupid to be able to work out what's stupid, then I think you're the person with the problem, not the person speaking. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, and, you know, what you, what you pointed out there, I think, was uh, we we start to think of, you know, outlets like Twitter and Facebook as public utilities, like they should be, you know, uh, like water or something. That, hmm. And, and uh, I'm not sure that they are, but that's that's definitely the perception that, you know, this is just something everybody should have the right to. Uh, but that goes uh, counter to what, you know, free market stuff mm -hmm. is all about. So it's it's just a, <laughs> it's a weird fence to walk. Oh, oh, you know. Yes, it's a very difficult one. I agree with you. But when you're that big, at what point are you no longer just a little company, you know? Right. You, you do become a utility, but you're a privately owned utility. Right. Well, it's... that's when it's time to step in and break up the monopoly. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> go mark for president. <laughs> Actually, I, I've, been, I've uh, put my name out there for the last three elections. I have a Facebook page that says Matt Napo for president 2020. I don't think I have one supporter other than myself. <laughs> but uh, I'd rather write myself in on, on a ballot. Than, than to not be able to sleep with myself thinking you know, I, I voted for you know, an evil person who's just ruining the world. So I put I just write myself <laughs> in every time. It is what it is. 
well, I look I look forward to seeing you in in command. Oh, and wow. um, I'd love I'd love to come to the White House when you're there. Okay, Matt. Way too many skeletons in my closet for that. <laughs> uh, but I thank you for your time today and insights no. here. It, it gave me a lot to think about. Uh, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, I'm still on the um, side of the individual people. I know I understand the, the frustrations with companies and, and media outlets and i think they're more to blame and the consumers are more to blame but i think journalism journalists the work actually working journalist is you it's me it's it's my neighbor i so i can't demonize them for doing the job that that is going to feed their family any more than i can anybody who's going to do in the job that and sometimes the companies and and the system itself you know the overall system can be corrupt and make us all look bad so i i can look like an evil person if you if the system i'm in uh becomes that right you know yeah. if, if, if so and that's why I, i'm kind of getting more careful about the people i give airtime to uh you know I've, I've had some approaches of people who i thought you know maybe that's a little on the evil side uh, and i don't want to i don't want to i don't want to be uh somebody who gives a platform to evil and mm. i don't want to be anybody who supports that that's that's all i i really yeah. care about it's a difficult one do. as well because you know as you say from a journalistic point of view it's like well do you give that person a platform and then you ask them the difficult questions um it depends on i will always ask questions and and be curious like i have and again i've had people on left right and i i ask uh genuine questions and try to get some information out of them what i'm talking about is i had somebody on who uh, who somebody who requested me he uh wanted to promote satanism and i was like well satanism you know and, and here's where it gets tricky i know it's a religion and you can say I'm being uh, discriminatory against the religion, but I know for a fact it's a religion that promotes rape, murder, and and, uh, and evil things. And I was like, do I want to even give a platform to that? Because it, no matter what questions I ask, uh, I'm it's not going to serve any public good for me doing that. <laughs> you know, it's it's difficult because because my gut reaction to that was I would love to jump in and do that interview. Because I would be like, well, how you said X, how do you justify Y? But at the same time, I think one of the dangers you have now is that while a lot of a lot of people watching this now would be like, this is fascinating. This is fascinating to hear them try and defend themselves. Unfortunately, there'd be enough people who would be outraged by it, right. who would then cause problems. And because to hear why someone genuinely thought that rape was acceptable, I, I would love to hear how they can possibly justify that. Right, but my my fear I'd be is one kid, one teenager, uh, li uh, you know, listening to that said, "Wow, that sounds like fun. I think I'm going to try." I know. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but where does that? Yeah, but where does that argument end? Because uh, absolutely everything you do, but this is the whole problem, isn't it? The whole problem with news, everything, is how do you draw that balance, and that that is where we ultimately end up with ourselves. Right. Well, and then that's what I was, that's kind of the point I was making is that for me, that's my personal choice is not yeah. to have that guy on here. So if, if I'm guilty of anything, it's I'm guilty of, uh, and, and, and there were people who would, would definitely demonize me for that and say, I'm being, uh, anti-religion or, or mm -hmm. discriminating against his religion. Uh, when I'm just saying, you know, that's one bridge. I'm, I, let's let him go on another show. <laughs> he can't be on mine. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. all i'm saying yeah yeah well it's like it's like the whole uh, the whole um
trying to remember his name. There's a, a conspiracy theorist person that was banned from almost dead. Uh, Alex, Alex somebody? Jones. Alex Jones. Alex Jones. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a classic example of, well, do you let someone come on and then as an audience go, I'm listening to this going, this guy is ridiculous. Or do you just not allow him airtime? Well, and and that is a really difficult one because then you get like, you know, there's sort of conspiracy theories about mass shootings. And it's like you listen to it and you go, this is absolutely preposterous. And even I would kind of go, yeah, well, that's so ridiculous. I, I wouldn't bother. So it's it's where do we draw that line, isn't it? It is really tough. Tragedy actors is what he was was claiming. Everybody who was on the news was faking their their kids were were killed, and they were all part of the. They've right. been used before in similar tragedies and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah. here's the thing with Alex, and this is this is where where it becomes smoke and mirrors. He's yeah. claiming he was censored by YouTube. YouTube never never shut him down. They decided not to monetize him, which means they weren't going to pay him for ad, ad advertising on his, his... I think they have the right to do that. They didn't pull him down and say, mm-hmm. we're not going to let you use the, the platform. They said, you're not going to make money off of this. And so he that was it. He was crying, that censorship. Well, not yeah. really. Yeah, yeah, but that plays, <laughs> plays well to your audience, though, doesn't it? Yeah, if yeah. you're If you're a conspiracy theorist, that plays beautifully to your audience. They're trying to shut us down, the government. Yeah. Uh, it's great branding, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Well, again, uh, great, great having you here. Great insights. Your your podcast is called "Can I Make a Hit Podcast?" The link will be in the description. Uh, how often are you are you coming out with us? Uh, well, it's it's very much an experiment. So instead of the normal rules, are you release a podcast regularly? I'm not with this. I'm trying different things. I'm looking into different angles and releasing it when I've got something interesting to say or something interesting that I've found. So it's a bit sporadic. But, uh, yeah, if people want to tune in on that one and uh, subscribe to it, then um, I will be having updates as I do. I mean, one of the ones I'm going to talk about is appearing on other people's podcasts, including this one right here. So that will be in one of the future shows. Okay, cool. Uh, you know, you know where you know how to get in touch with me. I mean, keep the door open. Let's stay in touch. And anytime Love you to. want to come back, you're absolutely welcome. I appreciate your time today. Always enjoy talking to you, Matt. All right, bye for now. Richard Midson, folks. Uh, I hope you got a lot out of uh, that. Um, you know, it's it's really a difficult uh, it's a difficult problem to find a, a real solution to, and because. There are so many powerful things at play, and, and and the biggest powerful thing at play is the almighty buck, of course. It's how these um, mass media companies, and they're becoming fewer and fewer and more consolidated, how they are uh, inclined to do what's easiest, cheapest to produce and, and produces the most profit for the least amount of expense. And so the truth becomes... Uh, not as important as as the dollar, and it's always been that way. You can you can look back, you know, uh, William Randolph Hearst and yellow journalism, all that stuff. Uh, the solutions are going to be hard to find, and I do believe in <clears throat> the uh, spirit of independent journalism. As I mentioned, Michael Hilliard, who has been on this program, fabulous one, and there are a number of ones out there. They're hard to find uh, because um, they don't have these big media platforms behind them. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. I hope you enjoyed this program. I hope you tell your friends about it and come on back and subscribe. Go to my YouTube channel and subscribe there. Go to minddogtv.com and get on my mailing list so you know I'm going to have great topics on and great guests and and, and so forth. Uh, here's the thing. I would really, really love to hear your thoughts and, and feedback on this. Please email me at info at minddogtv.com, info at minddogtv.com. 
till tonight uh, when my guest, who's my guest tonight? Uh, Robert Wagner of the Little Wretches, a, a uh, independent music act who's been had some longevity or surprisingly long career for an independent artist with no um no record label backing whatsoever other than his own his own independent label so um it, it will be a entertaining look at how he has managed to have some longevity in producing original independent music for over 30 years was well, uh, you know join me then at 8 p.m tonight i hope to hope you'll join us till then i'm matt napo for the mind dog tv podcast have a great day and thanks for coming and bye for now <laughs>